it's a little bit like the proverbial herding cats. Ultimately, we knew what was good for HRC fertility and our patients, and that principle never left us. That competitive and that eagerness to thrive also generated our success. Whereas a lot of models uh, in reproductive practices, there isn't that level of accountability. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Dr. Bradford Kolb. Dr. Kolb is a REI specialist and president at HRC Fertility in Pasadena, California. He's been practicing REI for 25 years. Dr. Kolb specializes in the care of complex fertility problems and under his guidance has helped improve HRC's donor pregnancy rate. Dr. Kolb is internationally known for his expertise in complex reproductive matters and is one of the largest providers of egg donation and surrogacy in the United States with patients traveling from around the globe to HRC Fertility in Pasadena to see him. Dr. Kolb, Brad, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Well, Griffin, it's a real pleasure to be here, and I'm excited for the next hour, and uh, just look forward to exploring this uh, topic a little bit further with you. I'm interested in having you on because I know HRC's history is a little bit different from some of the larger groups. And just for me, maybe it's because I'm on the East Coast. Maybe it's because I haven't seen you at PCRS, but HRC is just a little bit less known of of their history to me. And uh, maybe that's just me because I'm on the East Coast, but I wanted to explore it with you because it's the development of one large practice group, but was, wasn't always that way. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, I think to understand HRC, you need to understand the dynamics of the East and West Coast a little bit better. Uh, the East Coast has been always uh, developed into uh, large groups and different regional hubs. Most hubs have one or two large practices that dominate that uh, locale. Um, The West Coast has never achieved that. If you look all the way from Seattle down to San Diego, um, there's always been a plethora of practices that have uh, never dominated the marketplace. Uh, That's starting to change currently. But HRC was founded as just one of the small practices in Southern California by our two founding partners in 1988. And it's gone uh, through a number of iterations over the course of time. So it started more like a traditional fertility practice in the sense that you had the founding partners and then you had employed physicians. Uh, And that changed at about 1999, so 11 years into it. uh, It was restructured as a partnership. So there is a model for employed physicians to become partners and become equal partners in the process. And I think that's also one of the things that differentiates us from many practices is that we don't have a hierarchy of our physicians. 
Uh, we do have employed physicians, uh, but ultimately, hopefully all those employed physicians will become equal partners in the practice. Uh, the other things that are very different about our practice is uh, we allow the physicians to really run with their practices and develop it as they feel best they can serve their patients. We have some commonalities as far as sharing resources, but I think also one of the keys to our success is that when a patient comes sees a physician at HRC, that patient is a patient of that particular doctor. So you don't see different doctors. Uh, a lot of practices, you see the doctor of the day do an ultrasound, the doctor of the day doing embryo transfers or retrievals. One of our key successes is that you see your doctor for essentially every visit, every procedure through the process. That we've been able to share resources and develop very strong laboratories and leverage that to utilize technology and hire wonderful staff to really service our patients. I want to come back to that operations model because I think that is something that might be unique to HRC or, or, or something that others might consider implementing. But I'm interested in understanding the growth of the practice group, too, and it might be useful to explore your own growth within that to best understand that. You mentioned that, that there are multiple physician partners, that there are employed physicians, that there were two founding physicians that have since retired. Now you find yourself as president. How did that come to be? Was this a large group or a growing group when you joined? Were you an associate at first? How did you come to be the president of one of the largest groups in the country? So when I joined the practice in 2001, uh, it was just on the starting to roll as far as picking up uh, new partners, developing new regions, and becoming eventually a dominant player in the uh, California marketplace. Uh, the changes in 1999, making it a partnership, was really the impetus that got that going. I came on as the first new physician since uh, that change happened in 1999. And in 2001, I became an employed physician. And it really gives us a time to make sure that we're comfortable with each other. In other words, you want to dance a little bit before you get married. And so uh, I was able to develop a thriving practice. So I became attracted to HRC uh, and it became a place where I became really happy and decided I wanted to spend the rest of my clinical uh, career as far as practice of medicine. So there is a uh, process at that period of time where after two years, you went through an evaluation phase and then there was a vote which uh, elevated me to a partnership or equal partner. Uh, once again, there's no junior partners. It's employed physicians and partners. Uh, and at that time, there was a buy-in. So there was a formulation to buy into the practice. Uh, that has been done away with uh, for our new physicians coming in, but as far as like any kind of buy-in. But in 2001, started as a, uh, a employed physician, 2003, made partnership. And then over the course of the 10 years, the first 10 years at HRC, there's natural leaders that develop. Uh, our initial model was to have a management board and not have a single uh, uh, managing partner or president. So most of those years, uh, after about five or six years as a partner, um, I served as a managing partner. Uh, and then that uh, management board was done away with in 2017 when we underwent our merger with Jinshin Fertility. 
at that point, I became the president of HRC Fertility. But we still have very strong uh, management board in place that helps guide HRC's fertility's growth as well as our uh, day-to-day operation. So how does a new associate or an associate that wants to become partner become partner if there isn't a buy-in in the traditional sense? It's a very good question. Uh, the patient, I'm sorry, the uh, employed physicians uh, will practice for several years. It's not a defined period of time. Uh, our goal is certainly to elevate employed physicians to partners, uh, but that comes with uh, responsibilities, and we want to make sure that those that are elevated to the partnership role uh, can handle those responsibilities. One is a uh, performing a certain volume of business uh, that can sustain your practice. Uh, there's also, we're going to be looking at pregnancy rates, the clinical practice, to make sure you're a good fit for HRC fertility moving forward. Uh, our vision is my, many of the large practices is to sustain the practice once the uh, physicians that are here currently move on into retirement or into other fields. Uh, uh, that are going to leave a void for HRC. And is there, um, do those folks that that retire, do they get to hold their equity? Do they have to sell back to the practice in order to open up space for new partners coming in? Well, we're now a publicly traded company. So I own shares in Jinxing Fertility, which is our listing on the Hong Kong exchange. Uh, and I'm not obligated to sell or forfeit those shares upon my exit of the practice. Uh, and new uh, partners coming in are granted shares and other uh, benefits as they come into uh, partnership roles. I don't want to jump ahead, but you've definitely tempted me because I think the IPO is a really unique. It's not terribly common in our field. We're more used to talking about private equity, a few private equity firms purchasing groups. Um, we have had companies be public in the past. Integromed was public for a while, and Cigar took them off of the market. But what was that journey like? How do you how do you go from being a, a growing group to deciding this is the right move? I guess how did those discussions even start back when they were a pipe dream? Well, how did it go, or how you know? I'll, I'll tell you, it was difficult. Because we started this process on the inquiry of a patient of mine from China. And he kept uh, insisting that he wanted to buy HRC Fertility. So eventually, I threw out just a number off the top of my head of what it would take. And he said, okay. Uh, We didn't end up going with that individual. But uh, then there was discussion taking that. Was that a forget you number? We'll... we'll We'll use the polite term for for, <laughs> for the gentle ears of our audience. But was that a forget you? Like, for example, I have a forget you number that is a title sponsorship for the podcast because I actually don't want someone to buy the title sponsorship of Inside Reproductive Health. And that number will only keep going up if I feel like people are getting closer to it. But uh, I guess yeah. it, worst case scenario, if someone really wanted it, I would find a way to live with it. Was that was that number that you first got? Was that sort of a, you know, a get lost number? Actually, it wasn't because we've we've always entertained like what is our exit strategy eventually, um, and we have partners that have 
massive practices. I mean, both myself and Dr. Wilcox at HRC, we each perform over eight or 900 uh, egg retrieval cycles a year, each individually. So, I mean, how can I transition that practice to a new physician and get some valuation for that on my retirement? It's impossible. Uh, so we, we've always looked at, okay, is there a possibility to transition the practice over to another entity or individual? The other thing that we really wanted to look at is, is how do we expand and grow our practice? And we need financial resources to do that, and, but we need a lot of business expertise and guidance to do that as well. We're very good at position, as being physicians. We're very good. Uh, we became very good in dominating our local marketplace in Southern California, but we had a much bigger vision for HRC. So when I threw out that number, it was based on strictly business principles. This, you know, based on our EBITDA, this is the valuation of our practice for the amount of profit we were bringing in, the multiples that we were expecting based on sound business principles is what guided that. And it, it became an interesting discussion. But once we opened that box, uh, there was a flood of activity. So we actually spent almost a year with that individual's group. Uh, he assembled a group, uh, but it became an impossible ordeal for us. It, we were going to lose our practice. We we're going to lose our uh, control of the practice and just simply become an employee of HRC. Uh, and that was completely unacceptable to us as well. Uh, but we went through about a dozen groups, private equity groups and different opportunities. Uh, we had groups out of Canada, the U.S., and China and Hong Kong that were interested in either acquiring a portion of HRC uh, revenue streams or developing something much larger. And the group that we eventually settled on was Jinxing Fertility. So they came along after a year and a half of, after these discussions. We became very, I would say savvy is the best word I can think of off the top of my head about what we wanted, what it's going to take to accomplish this. Uh, and they were on board for it. They, they shared the same vision about increasing uh, our dominance in California and the West Coast, continuing with good medical care, allowing the physicians to control the practice as far as the practice of medicine. And also, they brought a vision about creating a global practice. So not only are we HRC Fertility, we have two partners in China, one in Chindu and one in Shenzhen, and they collectively do approximately 35,000 egg retrieval cycles a year. So it's created this unique opportunity to expand the clinical business, but also start to look at how do we develop research and how do we develop a global practice that is not just a sum of its parts, but is unique and can develop uh, unique avenues uh, for patient care and improve patient care and opportunities, opportunities for its physicians, nurses, and staff alike. And so was it together with your new partners? Were they already a publicly traded company and you became a part of that or together you listed on the Hong Kong exchange? So together we listed. So it, uh, it took about a year for us to merge the practices uh, and to apply for the listing in Hong Kong, which quite a process. Uh, fortunately, we had a lot of expertise from people like J.P. Morgan, Warbird Pincus that uh, handled that for us. But that was a phenomenal educational experience for me. 
but they handled the listing uh, and uh, it successfully uh, listed in June of 2019. How did you decide which exchange to list on? Why why not list in New York or, well, I, I guess you're not in the UK, so you wouldn't list in, in London, but is it, between China and the United States, you have a few different exchanges you could list on. Why Hong Kong? Yeah, so I mean, we looked at uh, looked at the American exchanges. We looked at uh, the Shanghai exchange as well as Hong Kong, and I think Hong Kong provided the best secure uh, exchange uh, where everybody felt comfortable. Our fears in listing on the Shanghai exchange would be that it would be very hard for the physicians or the owners at, at HRC Fertility to be able to bring or repatriate the money back to the U.S. It was just a lot of uncertainties that we were uncomfortable with. Honestly, the Hong Kong exchange offered a greater uh, visibility for our company. Uh, We were the largest uh, listing at that point in 2019 that generated a lot of resources and interest in our company. We would have been over-dominated by so many large tech exchanges uh, and other companies listing in the United States. Uh, and also, just from a business perspective, the multiples that we can achieve on the Hong Kong exchange uh, is going to be much greater than it would be in the U.S. Do you want your IVF lab to be at capacity? Do you want one or more of your docs to be busier? Do you want to see more patients at your satellite office before you decide to close the doors on it? But private equity firms are buying up and opening large practice groups across the country and near you. Tech companies are reaching your patients first and selling your own patients back to you. And patients are coming in with more information from the internet and from social media than ever before, for good or for bad, and you need a plan. A fertility marketing system is not just buying some Google ads here or doing a couple of Facebook posts here. It's a diagnosis, a prognosis, and a proven treatment plan. Just getting price quotes for a website, for a video, or for SEO, that's like paying for ICSI or donor egg ad hoc without doing testing, without a protocol, and without any consideration of what else might be needed. The first step of building a fertility marketing system is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's the cornerstone on what your entire strategy is built. You don't have to, but it is best to do that before you hire a new marketing person before you put out an RFP or look for services, before you get your house in order, because by definition, this is what gets your team in alignment. Fertility Bridge can help you with that. It is better to have a third party do this. We've done it for IVF centers from all over the world, and we only serve businesses who serve the fertility field. It's such an easy way to try us out. It's such a measured way to get your practice leadership aligned, and it's a proven process to begin your marketing system. Without it, Practices spend marketing dollars aimlessly and they stress their teams and they even lose patience and market share. Amidst these changes that are happening across our field and across society, if you're serious about growing or even maintaining your practice, sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's at fertilitybridge.com or linked here in the show notes. There is no downside to doing this for your practice, only upside. Now, back to Inside Reproductive Health. So you're doing eight or 900 IVF cycles a year yourself, and you're listing a company on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, merging with groups in other countries, learning how to entertain and decline offers from a dozen private equity firms. One of our biggest audience segments is fellows. It's one of the biggest listenerships that we have, and I, every week I have a fellow reach out to me saying, 
thanks, Griffin. We don't learn any of this in medical school. We don't learn anything about business. And that's generally true that physicians aren't learning about business in medical school or residency or fellowship. And here you are really looking like a Harvard MBA. And so how did you learn all of this during your tenure of practicing medicine? A lot of trial and error, but I've always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in me. And that that goes back to my childhood. Uh, I used to scour the local golf courses for the stray balls clean them up and sell them back to the golfers. Uh, and when I was 15, I managed to buy my first home, uh, rental home, not a very expensive one, but that got my entrepreneurial spirit going. But exactly like all the other fellows listening, I had no formal education in undergraduate, medical school, residency, or fellowship regarding business principles. It's a little bit flying uh, you know, by the wind underneath the wings, and going through trial and error. It's being willing to challenge yourself. Uh, it's being willing to fail, get back on the horse and learn those principles moving forward. I've got some very bright partners as well. And together we weeded through a lot of these different things as far as like negotiations, growth of the practice. So that's, that's one of the key things. Uh, and I would encourage the fellows if you have the opportunity, and there is an opportunity, take some business classes. If you're not planning on uh, just being an employed physician, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. But if you have any kind of entrepreneurial spirit, take some business classes. See if you can get an MBA along the way. There's ways to do that uh, that can at least teach you some basic principles. You're not going to really be able to solidify these principles until you're, you put your feet to the fire. And you've got to be willing to accept failure, uh, recognize that failure, look at what you did wrong, and then continue to move forward. The other aspect of this is I'm incredibly competitive. And in some ways, that can be a bad thing, but I learned to channel it in very positive ways. Some of the physicians are very competitive. So as we're building our practices, it helps HRC, but we learn from each other and we compete against each other a little bit as well. You know, we don't want to be outdone or outshined by our partners. So we work very hard. So it's learning as far as patient care, developing a system that allows us to see these kinds of volume of patients. And most of our doctors don't see those kinds of volumes. We have probably about four that are seeing about four to 500 patients a year as far as OPU cycles. So we have lots of physicians doing two to 300 cases as well. So you got to find what you're happy with uh, and what's going to drive you and what's going to make you feel good about your patient care. The other thing I really want to stress is difficulty in that volume of patients. You need to develop a system that's not going to compromise patient care or compromise your staff in any way. So if you don't do that, it's going to implode on you in the long run. Fortunately, we developed sustainable models as far as patient care, quality of care that looks after our staff and our patients uh, and treats everybody very well in the process. And I still want to explore more of that system. I'm curious because someone that buys a rental property at age 15, to me, suggests pure-blooded entrepreneur, but you didn't go that route in 2001. You started off as an employee. Why did you make that decision? Why didn't you open your own practice in 2001? Well, actually, if you go back, I finished fellowship in 1997. Uh, I had, uh, I was married. 
uh, had two young children and I started looking at what it was going to take to open a practice. I didn't have the confidence at that point in my career. I kind of lost a little bit of that entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and I was doing a lot of moonlighting to provide for my family. And one of those moonlighting jobs was at Kaiser Permanente. So I became a reproductive endocrinologist at Kaiser. In 97, it was a very different world. There were very few opportunities out there for the graduating fellows. And I made a good go of it at Kaiser for about three and a half years. I made partnership there. But it just wasn't the right place for me. I started to get that entrepreneurial spirit back. I started uh, to rebel a little bit against some of the control processes that were around me as far as patient care and the things that I can do. Not saying anything bad about Kaiser. It's a wonderful uh, place. I have fond memories of it. It just wasn't for me. Uh, so actually coming into uh, HRC Fertility in 2001 was starting to stretch my wings a little bit. Uh, I worked with my wife uh, and for the fellows that are out there, Make sure any of your decisions, you have your spouses buy into this process because they're coming along for the ride with you. Okay, I got my wife's permission to leave a secure uh, financial situation uh, and go at risk. Uh, as an employee at HRC, I did have a salary, but there was no security in that. Um, I could have lost my position there, uh, and much of my salary was based on performance that I was able to really get that entrepreneurial spirit going to build the practice. And for the first few years at HRC, really all I focused on was patient care and building my, my referral base. And as you do this and you start to have this entrepreneurial flair come back, are you the entrepreneur that tilts more towards the visionary side where you like thinking of the big picture and the culture and the patient relations dynamic, or are you higher on, I believe it's the, the DNC letters of the DISC profile where you're a control freak operator and you like implementing the systems, managing the leadership team, holding people accountable. Where do you tend to fall on that entrepreneurial spectrum? Well, it depends on when you ask me that in my career. It's going to change. And uh, some of that, you know, the early parts of my career was building my individual practice. Then it transformed into uh, maintaining that practice at building HRC. I, I could tell you where I'm at now in life, and I feel like I'm in a very good position in life. I'm very comfortable with the practice that I built. I'm looking at transitioning my practice uh, over to new positions. You know, let's be honest, at some point it does become unsustainable to continue these volumes of patients. So we are looking very aggressively at good position to hire and slowly transition our practices over. Um, then I'm very secure financially, uh, mentally, and I'm looking at, you know, what do I do for the remainder of my career? Um, I probably want to work for about 15 more years, but I'll probably start to wind down some of the clinical practice. I love seeing my patients, so I don't know if I'll ever give that up, but I'm starting to, I don't know if it's become more of a visionary uh, but I'm very much into data analytics and developing new models that allow practices to thrive, not just HRC fertility, but I want patient care to thrive. So there's two focuses I have. One is how do you collect data in a very usable, reliable manner, which is not done currently. I don't know about other fields of medicine, but in reproductive medicine, it's not to any significant degree. 
said, how do we start to look at this data? How do we start to individualize this data to help an individual physician improve their practice and treatment of their patients? We fly by our rings a lot as far as making patient decisions, treatment protocols, but there isn't a lot of data to back that up. So I'm very much interested in augmented intelligence to help augment the physician decision-making process. Um, but I'm also very interested in looking at how do we expand the breadth of reproductive medical care to the majority of people in society that can't access it currently. And most people can't access it for financial reasons. Uh, this is a very costly service, both emotionally and financially. So how do we alleviate those barriers for patients uh, moving forward? And those are my primary focuses for the next few years as, as I start to look at some of these transitions. I want to talk about those ventures. It'll help us to have a little bit of context of just how you think of these solutions and how you build the systems based on the systems that you built for HRC. You mentioned that a few of the physicians are doing 500 cycles a year and yourself and at least one of your partners are doing eight or 900 cycles a year. To me, that suggests really button down systems, especially if a physician is seeing a patient for every step of their journey. What are a few of the key tenets that have allowed you to do that? Does every doctor have a dozen IVF coordinators? Well, we, we give the resources necessary for each physician. HRC is undergoing a transformation at a corporate level. So we're providing a lot of these keys and growth strategies for our junior physicians to allow them to thrive and focus on the practice of medicine. So our marketing department is really gearing up. Uh, I'm really happy to see the changes that are being made in our marketing, our brand, branding and brand recognition. But we also provide well-trained staff for our physicians. We do share a lot of staff, uh, the IVF laboratory, the front office. So that's all taken care of uh, for us. That uh, as an individual physician, uh, we've developed a model where each physician has their own personal team. We think it functions much better for uh, the care of the patient and also that interaction between the physician and the nurses. And, and I, I do want to say that I do look at everybody in this process as a partner, even though they're not formally a partner, that my nurses are incredibly important. The front office staff is incredibly important. Everybody that touches a patient or a process is really critical for our success. That uh, we will have, each physician will have their own team. And as their practice grows and it warrants, then that team will expand. I have, I peaked out at about 20 uh, nurses and assistants servicing my patients. It's down a little bit because of COVID for a variety of reasons that you need that kind of volume of staff in order to support that many cycles and, and really not drop the ball on your patient. And did you always have this level of uniformity across the group in terms of systems and in cultures? No, I mean, this has been a practice under transformation. So in the early days, you know, we fought a bit against each other. It was always very competitive. Uh, at one point, we segmented the practice into three regions, the Encino region, Pasadena region, and Orange County region. And those are your three uh, labs, right? Is that, that's where your three labs exactly. are? Exactly. Yeah. 
The reason for doing that was a couple things. We felt that it gave greater accountability for each region to manage their staff and manage their resources. So we became very much more cost efficient in developing that model. Our model for years was basically uh, eat what you kill. In the sense, the busier you are, the greater your pay is going to be. But it can't come at the cost of driving up expenses so you become unprofitable or a region becomes unprofitable. So if a region, region wants to go out and build a new center, you have our blessing. You have our full support to do that. That under that model, you have financial accountability, but made us a very lean system as well. That's changed with the merger and the uh, listing on the IPO, but it was time for that to change. So in 2017, fortunately, we came together much more uh, cohesively uh, developing these models and growth strategies for HRC. But we still have a tremendous amount of financial accountability and accountability for our practices. Uh, to Jinxing fertility. You said that you used to compete with each other, and, and maybe that means butting heads, and I see it sometimes in two physician practices, much less <laughs> when you have multiple partners. How did you how did you get everybody on the same boat? Because I could see after having a degree of autonomy <clears> or of <throat> we're doing this way in our region, it being difficult to bring that back under one direction. Well, it's a little bit like the proverbial herding cats. Ultimately, we knew what was good for HRC fertility and our patients, and that principle never left us. That competitive and that eagerness to thrive also generated our success. Whereas a lot of models uh, in reproductive practices, there isn't that level of accountability. Why should I spend... 12 hours a day or seven days a week in the office if I don't see the rewards and benefits of that. So it it did generate that kind of work ethic that we wanted to see in our partners. Uh, You know, it's a changing world, so that's changing too. Uh, We ultimately knew that what we did had to be successful for HRC as a practice. Otherwise, it would become unsustainable. We would eventually, we we didn't want to become like one of those rock groups where you reach pinnacle of success and just have the world as your oyster at your feet and then lose it all because of bickering and infighting. Fortunately, we never lost sight of what we had to do, how to be best for HRC and HRC's interest. And now you're taking some of these systems or some of the solutions that you've thought about. You're starting to build ventures for other practice groups as well. What are those? Well, we're looking at opportunities. So I think fundamentally, um, the the low-hanging fruit for us is expanding our operations. As I mentioned, we are hiring new physicians. We have four physicians that we're going to make offers to currently. Uh, So we want to increase our footprint within the regional marketplaces that we are in. Uh, We're also looking at the opportunity of merging in several practices in our region, essentially shutting down their laboratories, uh, increasing the efficiencies of our laboratories and the financial resources uh, for everybody. Beyond that, uh, it's it's a challenge as you start to expand outside of your region. 
I would like to expand up north. Uh, Northern California looks like a great place to expand to, especially as some of the predominant practices are starting to age out. And I don't see many of them having a transition plan uh, that's going to be potentially viable. I can be wrong. I haven't talked to some of those physicians. But that creates a lot of challenges, as I'm sure that some of the other practices on the East Coast have shared with you. How do you either take over or open a practice outside your region and transition your practice philosophy and your corporate financial philosophy to that region? So that is something where hopefully our partnership uh, and access to uh, business expertise will help us make some of those transitions in the future. And are you are you beginning to delve into the software solutions or the EMR realm, or am I wrong about that? I am, but that's that's a separate venture outside of HRC Fertility. So I'm the chief medical officer of Fertility Pro, uh, and we're developing software solutions for fertility practices um, that we think are unique and very different than the software solutions that are out there, and really encompass much much more greater uh, realm of reproductive medicine and match the workflows of physicians, nurses, lab technicians, uh, the financial aspects of the practice as well. It sounds awful. Why would you want to take on <laughs> that challenge? Why would? What is it that you see about the EMR landscape that you think, yeah, this is a headache that I want to take on? I want all of the, the headaches that... Uh, nursing managers and billing managers and physicians might have what what is it that you believe is the the challenge to be solved by adding a new emr to the marketplace well first of all it didn't start as an emr i've been on three different emr systems uh none of which met any of my needs and for the most part of hrc you know, you're running multiple different systems in parallel they don't talk to each other they don't match uh, physician workflows. It's almost impossible to get usable data out of these systems. So I started uh, this uh, venture very simply as developing a small app that would allow me to do calendaring or my nurses to do calendaring instead of spending an hour to do, generate calendars uh, to do it in five minutes time. So that was about seven years ago. Uh, and then as we started looking at the different EMRs that were out there, we wanted the data from this app to flow in through an API into these EMR systems and populate correctly into the EMRs. And we realized the EMRs that are out there, they're not agile, they have cloud-based issues. So I don't know if it was on a whim or just being naive, we decided, well, let's build an EMR system. Uh, and that was about five, six years ago. So the system that Fertility Pro is working on uh, solves a lot of these issues. Uh, and we'll have a, a full launch uh, by the fourth quarter of 2020. So it's an exciting time to be in this realm. But it also allows me to start to transition my interest over to something that's going to touch a much greater uh, level of patient care. Right now, I can treat maybe 800 patients through an IVF or egg retrieval cycles a year. I'm interested in making a change for the industry as well as for the patient care moving forward beyond just domestically, but globally as well. Um, 
much of what fertility does, we've looked at the processes in multiple different countries. About 80 to 90% of it's the same in all countries. So we're trying to develop systems that will allow practices to grow and expand in a very efficient way, systems that will allow uh, the augmented intelligence and assisting patient care. And also we have some very unique features that we'll start working on next year to ease patient care to ensure that patients are uh, following the physician uh, instructions correctly, doing their uh, medication injections correctly, and much more accountability for uh, the patient involvement in their care. So how are you able to solve for this, though? Can all of this be solved for? Because I'm not an operations consultant. I'll never be a full-on operations consultant, but trying to be the marketing person, the marketing firm for this space, in the Venn diagram of finance, operations, and marketing, we try to fill in everything that's shaded in that overlap of finance and operations so that we can consult and provide the best solutions. And it seems to me like there's so much variance in workflow from clinic to clinic. And it's one of the challenges that networks have faced as they start to bring groups together. And every EMR has said that for the last, <laughs> how, how long is, well, the other ones don't do, and then name the function and the feature and partly solve for it, but how much is, is partly being able to solve for it for your own need? And then there's just a whole nother slew of challenges once you meet the next person's workflow, which varies from the next person's and so on. Right, and that's very difficult. Uh, I would tell you anybody that says they've solved it or can solve it is either very naive, stupid, or lying, because we're never gonna solve it. Technology changes, workflows change, even as an individual physician, we, we're very whimsical and our individual workflows change quite a bit. That you need to be based on systems that are agile, uh, that allow for a great deal of flexibility with the individual workflows. But there's going to be some aspects to any electronic medical record system, rather it be reproductive medicine, cardiology, dermatology, obstetrics and gynecology. There's certain aspects that are going to be, have to be hard programmed into the system that allow for not only, uh, you know, standardized, some standardization of workflows, but also the data analytics and ability to collect that data. It's extremely complex and hard. Uh, and we're, we're learning through it by involving a lot of clinicians to help us develop uh, or develop these systems, these wiregrams and workflows. Uh, and then as we develop it, they need to be tested, they need to be beaten down, the flaws are detected uh, and corrected for. And it's, it's going to be an ongoing process for eternity as long as any of these systems that are going to be honest about it for them to function effectively. We're not going to solve the problem, but hopefully we provide solutions that ease the workflow and improve the efficiency of the practices for the patient's benefit. I think that an open API will become requisite, and I, I hope that it, it happens more. I can tell you it's why we've never attempted uh, CRM is because in order for it to really be the most effective, it would have to integrate with different EMRs and just not ready to, to tackle that right now. So I hope that that's one of the things that comes to fruition. Brad, how would you want to conclude with our audience either about the trajectory a younger physician might be might be contemplating for their own career or 
what you'd like to see for the field? How would you want to conclude? That's a very open-ended question. It's basically um, my way of covering my butt so that you get to say what you wanted to say if I didn't ask it already. And it usually ends up being, oh, shoot, that could be an entire another episode. And then it's my excuse to have you on for a sequel. I love that. Look, I'm just sharing HRC's model. It's maybe not a model for many practices. Practices have to explore that from themselves within their marketplaces. You know, we, we live in a marketplace that's mostly cash or the, uh, the coverage that does exist is covered by uh, groups like Progeny or Carrots or others that manage those benefits. Uh, but we're still 80% uh, cash paying patients. That gives us a lot of flexibility. So I don't know what it's like to practice medicine in covered states like uh, Massachusetts or Illinois, but these are the systems that work very well for us. We're always exploring change. We're always open to change. But I think the things that were very tantamount to our success is giving the individual physicians a lot of flexibility to control the medical care that their patients receive. We'll never have a, uh, a system in place where you have to use certain types of protocols. Uh, you have to certain uh, follow certain guidelines. As long as your patients are comfortable, they're receiving good care. Uh, we allow our physicians to practice and treat their own patients. And as far as like the young physicians, uh, it's a very different market out there than when I first started. Um, We see a lot of physicians not interested in the entrepreneurial aspects of it. They want a a job. They want security. Those jobs are out there. Uh, We have physicians for you. We love those that have very entrepreneurial spirits and want to take on some of the business development aspects of care. But I really encourage you, never take your eye off the ball. You went into medicine to serve others. And reproductive medicine is a wonderful field. You can, you can do many different things. You, you can become a business expert. You can become a patient expert. But really never take your eye off the ball, which is always a duty to serve your patients and do what's best for them. But I would expand that. Uh, you got to do what's best for your staff as well. Those people in your office, everybody in your office is an equal to you. Everybody has an incredibly important role for the care of the patient and to make sure everybody is taking care of their safety and health and well-being, especially during this COVID crisis, that that we should never lose track of. It's a changing world. Don't be afraid of change. Don't take your eye off the ball. Um, and I guess the last thing I'll close on is for younger physicians, and I wish I had taken this advice a little bit more to heart. For those of you that have children or spouses, involve them. Never take your eye off of your family. You're a provider to your family that your family, more than they need your money and your financial resources, your kids need you there to be part of their lives. And that's probably the thing. I wish I could have changed my counsel to be there a little bit more. When I was with my family, I was always very involved and engaged, but I wasn't there enough. Unfortunately, uh, I've re-engaged my children in very, uh, a very strong way. Take care of those around you at all levels. Be happy. Seek out the things that you want to do within medicine and life and be successful at it. And if, uh, if you're unhappy, or you don't find not finding success, 
there's always another opportunity out there for you. Those are my key pieces of advice for especially the younger physicians and fellows. Sounds like a decent life to me. Dr. Kolb, Brad, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Griffin, it's been my pleasure. Uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime in the future. Uh, but thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.